Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and we are going to have a really, really, um, I think, fun and interesting conversation with Dr. Daniel Gibbs, who is a neurologist who is personally battling Alzheimer's disease. So just think of that, uh, someone who was helping others and is now dealing with that. He has a wonderful book called A Tattoo on My Brain. A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease. And before I introduce him, like always, I'd like to uh, explain to our new listeners who Alzheimer's Speaks is and, and why we do what we do. Bottom line, my own mother had dementia for 30 years, and I just thought it was critically important for us to raise the voice of those diagnosed and those that care for them and who are have product services and tools because families and professionals both need this information. We need the insight of what it's really like to live with dementia and you know, how do we best serve those people. So on our show, we, you know, we talk for about an hour. This is a live show, so you can call in if you'd like. That number is 323-870-4602. And uh, enjoy the conversation as well. Now, we we try to bring you sound news, not just sound bites, from real people in the trenches. So keep that in mind, because maybe, just maybe, you could be our next guest. We are always welcoming new people. Just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com, and we'll take it from there. Now, I want to shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. They are... Um, just doing a magnificent job um, updating all the memory cafes in five different countries. And some of them are coming back uh, to meeting in person. Others are still meeting virtual. And some, um, you know, have just kind of gone on pause. <clears throat> but you can get all the detailed information at Memory Cafe Directory. I also love giving a shout out to Coro Health, that's C-O-R-O Health, because they are still allowing people to download uh, two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith, during the pandemic. Um, and then last, I want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, our global resource directory that we uh, just recently launched. And this is free for all users, for people with dementia, for families, for professionals. We don't ask for any upfront personal information. We don't want to intimidate anybody or make them feel trapped. Uh, we just want easy access. And if you happen to have a service product or tool 
um, or information or a book, we would love to have you join us as well. You can find out more on uh, on either side you are at DementiaMap.com. And let's see, we're going to hear from the foot bar walker, and then I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Daniel Gibbs. Introducing the life-changing foot bar walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, <laughs> and I'm 91 years old. The foot bar walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The foot bar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the foot bar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot bar walker. Well, welcome back. And now it's time to reveal our guest and give you a little more detail and get into a great conversation. Dr. Daniel Gibbs is one of 50 million people worldwide with an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. And he's one of 5.8 million right here in America living with the disease. The difference is that Dr. Gibbs is a neurologist who has spent 25 years caring for patients with Alzheimer's disease himself. He realizes that he too uh, might have the disease even though there's no official diagnosis or serious signs of cognitive decline um, had, had occurred. <clears throat> so how did he come to that conclusion? We're gonna find out. Um, we will find out today as he tells us his story. We're also going to hear about his book titled A Tattoo on My Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease. Dr. Gibbs' um, stories are going to warm your heart and inspire you as he shares how one scientist reckons with the disease. He has spent most of his life studying from the outside, looking in, and now he finds himself with a front row seat on the inside of the disease. So welcome, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm, ha I'm happy to be here with you. Now, I always ask, you know, everybody, and this is kind of funny, if you've been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends with dementia, and I'd still like to know that if, it, if you've been surrounded by that. But then also, when did you start noticing signs yourself that, that concerned you? Well, I, I had no obvious uh, family members with uh, Alzheimer's, but both of my parents died early. Uh, my, my dad died of cancer at age 60, and my mother was in her early 70s. So it really wasn't on my radar screen. With a, with a little um, post hoc digging that I did once I had my diagnosis, I did discover more distant relatives that almost certainly had Alzheimer's. Um, but as I say, it wasn't on my radar screen. Um, in retrospect, my first symptom of Alzheimer's uh, probably uh, occurred about 15 years ago uh, when I first 
uh, started to lose my sense of smell. Um, although at the time, uh, I had no idea that that might be related to Alzheimer's. Um, and it was very, very subtle at first. I just, uh, uh, actually remember the very first time I was walking the dog with my wife, uh, and, uh, I bent over to smell some roses in somebody's front yard, and I commented to my wife that, boy, you know, this this is a beautiful rose, but it doesn't have much of a of a scent. And she smelled it, says, yeah, it smells great. So that was just kind of a curiosity. Uh, and, th- and then about a year later, uh, these weird illusory smells called phantosmias, uh, they're pretty rare uh, and not – known to be associated with Alzheimer's, but I would smell uh, a, a, an odor that was always the same, uh, but with nothing in the real world making that smell. And it was always the smell of baking bread mixed with perfume, very pleasant. Uh, actually, if you read about phantosmias in the medical literature, um, most of them are unpleasant, but mine were very pleasant. Uh, they would last a couple of minutes or maybe up to an hour. And uh, as I said, there was no obvious uh, uh, real uh, olfactory stimulus. Uh, and again, j- this was just a curiosity. At the time, mm-hmm. I, I was uh, working full time. I had uh, you know, no cognitive impairment. Uh, and it wasn't until another six years later that I started to notice, notice just some very mild uh, cognitive issues that I wouldn't have thought uh, uh, much about at all. That, that, by that time, I was in my early 60s or mid-60s. Um, I had, I had uh, uh, occasional trouble remembering the names of colleagues. Uh, I moved to a new office, and I uh, never could uh, learn the, the phone number of my new office or the address of my new office. But again, uh, uh, I wasn't particularly concerned, except by that time I, I had accidentally learned that I have two copies of the APOE4 allele, which I knew uh, you know, greatly increased my chance of having Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the reason that I accidentally found that out was that uh, my wife, who is, uh, loves to do genealogical searches, uh, uh, suggested that we get our DNA tested, and uh, back in those days, they they uh, had a lockbox uh, in the results of your DNA uh, that uh, for a couple of neurological genes. And uh, I was interested in unlocking that box and looking because one of the genes was a uh, a gene for Parkinson's disease, and I and I knew that Parkinson's disease was uh, associated with loss of sense of smell, and I wondered, you know, well maybe I'm going to get Parkinson's disease someday. Uh, but that gene was normal. I didn't have that. But the other gene was the APOE gene. And uh, uh, I was flabbergasted to find that I had two copies of the APOE4 allele, which gave me a, a very high chance of having Alzheimer's disease uh, by the time I was 70, or a 50% chance, I should say, of an virtually 100% chance by age 80. Um, so all of a sudden, Alzheimer's was on my radar screen, and uh, I uh, had a friend who was a neurologist, uh, a dementia specialist, and I asked him uh, to do some uh, off-the-record 
cognitive testing with a computerized program. And, and uh, I did that, and uh, I did very well uh, in most areas uh, in the 95th percentile, which means I did better than 95% of the people who took that test. Uh, but in verbal memory, uh, I was only in the 50th, 50th percentile, so just about average, which, so it's still normal. But there was just a hint there that something was not quite right with my verbal memory. So a couple of years later, I uh, had, was noticing a little bit more cognitive impairment. So I, I volunteered for a study. This would have been in 2015 um, at University of California, San Francisco. That was a neuroimaging study looking at a then new uh, tau PET scan for uh, looking for evidence of Alzheimer's for the neurofibrillary single, uh, the neurofibrillary tangles that have abnormal tau protein in the brain. Um, and so as part of that study, uh, I had uh, an amyloid PET scan, a tau PET scan, an MRI scan, and two days of cognitive testing. And at the end of the, uh, of the week, uh, I was able to look at the scans and uh, there was, you know, abnormal amyloid there, which was consistent with early Alzheimer's. And there also was uh, tau, which is the, the uh, which appears later in the disease, um, more about the time that cognitive uh, impairment sets in. But I still had essentially normal cognitive testing. So it was in the mild cognitive impairment range. But the, the PET scans were uh, consistent with early Alzheimer's disease. And as the years have gone on since then, I've gotten a little bit worse. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, That that was great detail that you gave us. Um, You know, I had always heard that a lot of people will smell um, burnt rubber, and a lot of those people have had um, Lewy body dementia. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they talk talk about, um, you know, fire or burning burning rubber so it's it's interesting you had a pleasant smell of at least so hopefully it was a good perfume mixed with the bread <laughs> that's there. right yeah the, the Lewy body uh the Lewy body dementias and parkinson's disease are um also associated with phantosmias or are clearly associated with phantosmias alzheimer's not so much mm-hmm. uh, but they i'm not sure it's really been looked into uh as thoroughly as it has with parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia yeah. Well, and I know, you know, my mom lived with dementia for for 30 years. And when we did her autopsy of the brain, it came back for sure um Alzheimer's, but they also asked about um Lewy body and Parkinson's, mm-hmm. which we didn't see a whole lot of signs, you know, yeah. with that, but it's um, you know, I I personally encourage people if you can do those autopsies because it does give so much data for us to, to be able to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I, and I want to thank you for being part of that study as well, because, you know, yeah. that's a brave, brave step to step into that. And a lot of people want to, you know, they want to help. They want to be part of the studies. Um, many get frustrated because they have to be so stringent in, you know, um, in the criteria. But again, mm-hmm. we need people to participate in those to <clears throat> to help move things forward. Um, with that, I want to ask you also because I always find this really fascinating too. How did you come up with the title to your book, "A Tattoo on My Brain"? Well, it, it, I actually came up with the title before I even started working on the book, and then I abandoned the title and, and 
uh, came up with one which was uh, not nearly as good and, and uh, uh, came back to the other the tattoo and and, and what the what the tattoo means uh, is it has both a, a literal and a, a figurative meaning to me. Uh, I don't have any tattoos uh, except that was one, one of the brain. things I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've thought you know I've been. I've had my co-writer, Teresa Barker, said, you really ought to get a tattoo. Uh, I think my wife would have other ideas about that. But, um, no, I don't have a real tattoo. But um, to make a long story short, the, uh, I was, what, I've been in, in four uh, clinical trials or, or studies. I actually tried out for one other one, but I wasn't cognitively bad enough for it. So, excuse me. Um, but the the major trial that I was in was uh, one of the monoclonal antibodies uh, directed at amyloid, uh, uh, aducanumab, which has been in the news recently. And uh, I had a, 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 a adverse reaction to it, uh, which is is fairly common and is usually fairly trivial. Uh, but mine was, was quite severe although I fully recovered from it. But in the process, I had uh, some little areas of bleeding uh, into my brain and swelling of the brain. And the swelling went away after some months. And, but the, the blood uh, left behind an iron pigment called hemosiderin, which will probably be there for the rest of my life. It has no consequence at all. But if I have an MRI scan now, it will probably show these little black dots uh, that are left over from that microhemorrhages and uh, the hemosiderin really isn't all that different from the ink that a tattoo artist would use and so that's that's the um, the literal uh, meaning of a tattoo on my brain that'll be there for the rest of my life but the figurative meaning is uh, as I say I don't have a tattoo but it seems to me that that when you have a tattoo it's um, it's a um, it's a sign of who you are, and, and it's, it's putting yourself out and saying, here, look at me. Uh, and, uh, and that's how I kind of feel about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I, I want to not hide in the closet. I want to come out, talk about it, and, and try to uh, do all I can to reduce the stigma that is so pervasive with Alzheimer's disease and get us able to talking about it uh, not only in the late stages, but in the earliest stages as well. Oh, I, I fully agree with you, and I, I applaud you for taking that stance because, you know, the <laughs> stigma is so um, just overt, you know, and <laughs> it's, you know, this is a <clears throat> a disease that's invisible on a lot of levels uh, to people, especially in the early stages, and and some people are actually taunted and bullied, um, people not believing that they have them because they look okay. Um, I mean, there's right. so much to deal with um, when when you're dealing with these losses in terms of how you used to participate in life. And and uh, you know, so again, I, I think it's great to have the conversation. That's really one of the reasons I started Alzheimer's Speaks to begin with was I believe um, people living with the disease have so much to teach us. And that we're going to learn faster, um, and when we learn together, when we really listen. Um, and so, again, um, applaud you for that. 
Now, in your book, you outline some actionable steps that people can take to both prevent and, and treat the disease. I'm wondering if you can share some ideas on that with us. Yeah, uh, and and as a preface to that, let me just say you know, from the get-go that, that uh, whether you're talking about lifestyle modifications or possible uh, forthcoming drug treatments for Alzheimer's, my very strong feeling is that they're going to be most effective if used in the earliest stages of the disease, uh, perhaps even before there is any cognitive impairment. You know, it's important to understand that the changes in the brain, the amyloid plaques, uh, uh, show up t- about 20 years before there is any cognitive uh, impairment. The neurofibrillary tangles, the, the tau-containing tangles, show up a, a year or two or maybe a little bit before that, before cognitive uh, impairment starts. But by the time there's cognitive impairment and we can make a, a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, it may be too late to have much impact on the progression of the disease. So I'm trying to move the conversation earlier, uh, even to the, the stage before there is any cognitive impairment. And that's really tough because how do you know that somebody has Alzheimer's disease? And uh, but I think that's a conversation that, that we have to have, and, and, and certainly people with, with a family history of it should think about doing something actionable early, maybe volunteering for a study. But the, the lifestyle changes that have been uh, you know, well-documented, at least for uh, the first two, and, and are uh, things that we can do at any time. And the most... Um, well-studied one and well-documented is aerobic exercise. So people who get uh, an adequate amount of aerobic exercise and and how much an adequate amount is is still not agreed upon, but Jack, my dog, and I uh, try to get 10,000 steps uh, in the hills of of Portland every day. Sometimes we don't quite make it. Sometimes we get 15,000 steps. Uh, You just want to get your heart beating. Uh, so the aerobic exercise seems to be, be better than just you know, strength exercise. Uh, and uh, it doesn't have to be running, but anything, walking, swimming, uh, is good for you. And it's good for everything. I mean, it's good for the heart, uh, for cardiovascular health, uh, obviously, and as well as brain health. But it should be started early. It should be started in midlife or before. Uh, and, of course, those are the times when we're, business in our lives and, and may have, uh, it may not be a top priority to carve out an hour a day or whatever to, to get some aerobic exercise. But I think it's really important, particularly if there is a family history. So the second one is diet. And the data there is looking pretty darn good that Mediterranean style diets uh, reduce uh, the rate of progression of Alzheimer's in, at least in the early stages uh, and reduce the chance of getting it, uh, and there are have been several diets based around the Mediterranean diet. There's the the Dash diet that was uh, I can't remember what that stands for, but it, it was um, designed to treat hypertension or to prevent hypertension. Uh, and then there's this uh, diet called the Mind diet, which is oh gosh, I should have looked up what it stands for. Mediterranean. Oh well, I can't remember, but uh, it's very similar to the Mediterranean diet, but it has a, a, an extra emphasis on 
foods that contain a lot of flavanols, uh, like nuts and berries, uh, and of course those those bitter green vegetables that a lot of people don't like, like kale. Um, but uh, that's what I I follow. The there have been again fewer studies on diets and with exercise, but uh, the Mind Diet looks to be where it's been compared head to head with a, a straight Mediterranean diet. It seems to be uh, a little bit better in again slowing the progression of Alzheimer's in the early stages. And uh, oh, I'm losing my I'm losing my train of thought. Let me see. I've got an excuse here because I do have Alzheimer's disease, but. Uh, I'll try to get back on track here. Um. <laughs> you're you're fine. We were talking about the different diets, the DASH, the MIND diet, yeah, and the, yeah, the Mediterranean yeah, yeah. diets, and and these are all yeah. easily Googleable um, out there. Right. You know to to look up and um, and get more information on those. But yeah, diet is 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 huge. Exercise. Um, and they're probably two of the biggest lifestyle changes that people I think struggle <laughs> struggle with. Right. But, but when you talk about, you know, protecting your mind and what is that really worth to you, um, you know, as these numbers climb, I think it, I think it's really critical for people to look at this. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm right there with a lot of people in terms of uh, not doing quite what I should with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, did, I did find here what the DASH diet stands for dietary approaches to stopping uh, hypertension. Hypertension, uh, so right. I did find that one. I haven't found the MIND um, acronym, what that stands for there. Oh, here, let's see. Oh, Mediterranean-Intervention for um, Neurodegenerative Delay. That's what that one stands for. Yeah, so, okay, thank you. Um, are, are there <laughs> some other uh, – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say that doesn't really roll off the tongue very easily, does it? No, the, the no, mind. it doesn't. <laughs> No, no, it's, and that's why those acronyms are there, you know, because they're just so much easier. Yeah. Are there other things that you recommend for, yeah, uh, you know, there prevention are. as well? Yeah, and, and let me, get, if you don't mind, let me go back to the, the, the diet for a minute because I'll forget otherwise sure. to, to make this point. Um, the, the, the MIND diet for me has been really easy to follow, uh, and, and that is really a consequence of my lost uh, taste of smell which has affected my taste. And I think my taste has been, over the last couple of years, uh, impaired in addition to the, the loss of smell. So frankly, most foods taste the same to me. So uh, I actually find that kale I really enjoy because that, that little bitter flavor comes through and actually gives me something to identify. Uh, so I guess that's a, a it's a hidden benefit of the of the loss of smell and taste is that I I have no trouble eating uh, this diet that a lot of people uh, which president was it was a Bush who wouldn't eat broccoli or I, I can't remember somebody didn't like broccoli and and uh, famously and uh, you know people make jokes about kale and spinach and broccoli but uh, do what you can to to work them into your diet. Okay, let's go on to the other things. Um, and and as we go down the list, the, the, the data is there, but maybe not quite as robust and more controversy about it. Um, staying socially active does seem to be important. Uh, and that is really hard when you have Alzheimer's because uh, 
particularly as the disease progresses, but even in the early stages where, where I still am, um, apathy is a, a real problem. And it's, 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 it's not because you're just bummed out because you've got Alzheimer's disease. There's a change in the brain that, that uh, makes you, and it's probably due to the, the uh, damage to the prefrontal lobes that are where we uh, get our motivation. Uh, or you know planning mm-hmm. and, and 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 that's damaged and so uh there's just you know i would just prefer to to stay home and read a book now with the pandemic that's been great uh, but i i'm i'm not at all uh interested in in i don't miss you know big gatherings with people uh, and and in addition i have a lot of trouble uh understanding words when more than one person is speaking i can't separate uh two conversations as all of us do automatically uh we're able to hone in on, on one conversation and get rid of the rest of the noise i can't do that so if i'm in a room with a lot of people speaking i just retire uh because i i i can't make sense of it even if a large family dinner is hard for me um so you have to make a conscious effort to make those social connections because they are important, but they're harder to do uh, when you have Alzheimer's. Um, the other thing is uh, to stay intellectually active. And uh, I think that's really important, and the data is, pr- is pretty good for it. And uh, it seems that the important thing is to do things that involve learning, uh, not just retrieving old memories. So they, they always say that uh, uh, doing a lot of crossword puzzles makes you good at doing crossword puzzles, but it may not do much for your, 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 uh, your brain. Uh, I do, I love to do crossword puzzles, uh, but I try to, to, to push my brain a little bit. And um, when I get to the harder ones at the end of the week, uh, I do the New York Times puzzle while I'm doing the eating my lunch, and and by the end of the week they're pretty hard, and uh, oftentimes they'll pop up with a a place or a word uh, that I have no idea what it is, uh, and uh, so when it's filled in, I go and look that up and, and try to learn something about that new word or that new geographic place or whatever. Uh, so the things that that are are best for stimulating your brain are things that are putting down new memories, learning a new language. Of course, that's, that's beyond me right now, but that helps establish new synapses and and, and, uh, nerve cells connecting with each other in the brain. Um, uh, Reading. I, I, I try to read two books a week. I can't remember what I've read, but just the act of reading is enjoyable to me. And I think that's healthy for the brain. Um, and uh, just writing this book has been a huge intellectual exercise for me, and I, I think it's really helped me, you know, stay sharp. Uh, so the worst thing you could do is just vegetate and, and not uh, keep using your mind. Then the, the last area that uh, – are we to five now? This is a, I may have missed one, but uh, – is sleep. And that's kind of a new area of – a relatively new area of research in Alzheimer's. Uh, but it does seem important to get adequate uh, sleep. Um, and uh, the mechanism of that may be this, uh, and again, this is a fairly new area, th- this uh, 
fairly recent discoveries that there is uh, fluid going through the brain at night uh, that <laughs> cleanses the brain, if you will, uh, and it removes toxins and uh, even apparently amyloid is, is removed to a certain extent. And uh, even if that turns out not to, I mean, in, in animal models, it's very effective at actually causing cognitive improvement. In humans, we really haven't gone that far yet. Uh, but uh, it, it seems that people who get less than six, six or less hours uh, per week are much more likely to get Alzheimer's than people who get seven or more hours per week, of, uh, not per week, per day, per night of sleep. I, I've totally bungled that up, but um, th there was a really interesting paper that came out just a week or so ago that, that looked at, uh, I think it was like 10,000 people in, in a 20-year period in the, the UK. Uh, it, was, it was looking at various health outcomes uh, but they were able they had information on their sleep reported sleep and i i don't remember the the exact number but i think it was something like uh the people who got less than six or less hours of sleep per night uh had about a 30% greater chance of getting alzheimer's disease than those who got seven or more hours of sleep so uh that's something that I try to do religiously. And it's hard because uh, Alzheimer's itself disrupts sleep. So, uh, you know, once you have it, it's hard to get that, that important time. But, again, this is something that we should be doing in the busy time of our lives when we're in our 40s and 50s. It's not shortchanging our sleep, getting exercise, staying intellectually active, staying socially active, and eating a heart-healthy diet. Oh, I, I agree. I'm glad you brought up the sleep component because I'll never forget Rudy Tanzi saying, you know, he prided himself on getting little sleep and being a multitasker, and he said, boy, that just really shifted, you know, his, yeah. looking at his own world. And, you know, as, as we age, um, too, people sleep less. A lot of times they're up running to the bathroom during the middle right. of the night. And so, you know, how, you know, how do we look at staying hydrated and still not having a full bladder, you know, or, or mm -hmm. digesting food? All of those types of things are, are things that can help us, too. Um, or maybe not listening to the news, doing something calming like you read or meditate or, you know, just quiet. Time. Yes. Um, there's a lot of different things that we can do to change. Um, I, I'm a big, big um, push in terms of um, staying socially connected and educating people on those changes. You made some great points of, you know, large groups are difficult. Noise is difficult. These are things we can control, you know, um, right. but we can't control them if we don't have the conversation about them. And right. uh, and so I think that that's important. And then staying purposeful, you know, feeling uh, feeling like you haven't lost everything. Like you said, you're reading. You might not be remembering everything you read, but it, the process in and of itself still has value. And I Absolutely. remember, I remember when my mom was in a nursing home. She got to the point where she couldn't read her newspaper. And and my brothers would say, well, why why are we getting that for her? And I said, because it's part of who she is. Yeah. Not who she yes. was, but who she is. 
Mm-hmm. And and this is in, important. And, you know, one day I, I remember she I came in and she was reading the paper. She was holding it up, but it was upside down. And yeah. <laughs> um, there were some people, there were some people giggling and it's just like, if they, because they didn't understand what was going on and why, yeah. why would somebody do that? Because it was important to her to blend mm-hmm. in, to have this routine. And so I just asked her if I could borrow the paper. There was something on the back I wanted to look at. And then I turned it around and gave it back to her the correct yeah. way. Yeah. You know, yeah. without scolding, pointing it out, uh, those things are, are um, I think, you know, just critical elements of being good human beings and, um, yeah. and, you know, protecting and lifting and allowing people to live dignified lives, I think is, is very, very important um, to do. Now, you know, the, the tattoo portion of, of um, your book and kind of the meaning, you know, offers that trustworthy um, perspective of, of a physician and a scientist who, you know, you seem like you're really grounded in, in optimism and, and practical advice, you know, for somebody dealing with this. So how were you able to really strike balance? Was it really by applying this, you know, exercise, diet, staying socially connected, um, staying active and, you know, adjusting your sleep? Did, did those things really help you or, um, or were there other things you did, maybe becoming part of a, a, an advocate group or a support group? Yeah, well, um, uh, yes and yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I don't know what's helping me, but I, I want to do everything possible to uh, not only to, to help slow the progression of my disease. I, I know, you know it's eventually going to get me. But I would like to have as many years of, of you know, good functional life before that happens. Uh, so I'm working on that. But I'm also trying to be an advocate and, and try to, to teach. So I, I, I uh, speak to medical students uh, through the Alzheimer's Association uh, here in Portland uh, as part of a panel of people living with Alzheimer's disease or, and or caregivers. Uh, and uh, I talk to anybody who will listen. Uh, so you know, all my neighbors know that I have Alzheimer's disease, and, and uh, uh, I actually I actually wrote a uh, a paper uh, for Scientific American that came out a couple of weeks ago about uh, face blindness, and uh, I used the example of uh, three of my neighbors who are uh, young women who all had. Uh, babies at about the same time about a year and a half ago and uh, two of them have dark hair and one of them has blonde hair and the, the gist of this article was how face blindness is a, a very common part of Alzheimer's but it's but there also is this concurrent face blindness that we're all experiencing due to having to wear masks for COVID-19 mm-hmm. and how how kind of talking about the intersection of those two things so the, as I say in this brief article, I was out walking in, on my street, and I came across a blonde woman uh, pushing a stroller with a child in it. And I went over and, and, and started talking to her, asking how old her child was at that time. And we, we conversed for a few minutes. And then as I was walking away, I looked back. And she had the wrong dog. 
I mean, the, the, her, her, her dog wasn't the dog that belonged with that woman. And I realized that this was not one of my neighbors. This was a total stranger who I had walked up to and started talking to. Um, and um, <laughs> had a good laugh over that. And, and so I, I shared that uh, when that article came out uh, in Scientific American, I sent a link to it to the three women uh, on my street. And, and uh, uh, at least two of them, I don't think, knew that I had Alzheimer's at that time. Uh, and they all were very, uh, I think, touched that I did that and, and that I um, – you know, wasn't in the closet and that sort of stuff. And, and at least one of them was, you know, she felt like she was a rock star, that she was in Scientific American. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of kind of a fun thing. Uh, well, but yeah, and I, I, do I, talk, I do talk to people. And, you know, and I like that, you know, even though you made that air, you didn't beat yourself up. You got to laugh out of it. I mean, those things happen <laughs> to all of us in our lives and we, we laugh about them. And, and so often I find when there's, chronic uh, illness um, such as dementia people people forget to laugh you know and yeah. I mean we all we all do silly stuff I mean that's it's going to happen none of us are perfect you know and yeah. and I think it, I think <clears throat> you know having a sense of humor can go a long way um, in no matter what we're dealing with in life and it, it isn't any different with dementia I think the other thing is that um, sometimes care partners take things so seriously and they forget to laugh, you know, with their loved one or their friend. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, to me, that's a critical piece that's very attractive to me in any relationship. I love to laugh, Mm -hmm. you know, and as I think most people do. And so don't forget the simple things that add so much value to our lives. Uh, I I think that that's um, very, very critical. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you was uh, you had mentioned genetic testing and, you know, maybe doing that early. What do you what do you think? Should people do that or not? I've heard people on all different sides of the yeah. the board with this one. Well, that's a that's a complicated question. And, and I, I, I'm not a fan of of uh, undirected genetic testing. You know, I think that if you're going to do it, it ought to be under the guidance of somebody who can can tell you what it means uh, and and what to do with that information. Now, mm-hmm. for for somebody with a family history of of Alzheimer's, uh, you know, a parent uh, or a brother or sister with a first degree relative, of course, that's going to increase their risk more than anything uh, for getting it. And uh, those are the people who I would encourage to, uh, for one thing, start doing those lifestyle changes, whether they find out whether they've got a gene or not, uh, because it's good for you, even if you're not going to get Alzheimer's. But um, but also to consider about volunteering for a study, because there are a number of studies out there now that are, you know, trying to find people who don't have clinical signs of Alzheimer's, don't have any memory problems, but are on the road to possibly getting it, because we're starting to do studies uh, to see if we can prevent it. And I think that's where the sweet spot's going to be in, in, in finding a drug that works for, for Alzheimer's is, is getting something to use early. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a long-winded way of, of saying uh, I, genetic testing is not for everybody. Um, and, but uh, for people uh, with a family history 
I'm, then I would suggest uh, if they're interested in doing something uh, about uh, the treatment for Alzheimer's is to volunteer for a study. And mm-hmm. and I I love being in studies. I mean, it was a gas. I mean, it was uh, entertaining. Uh, it uh, was um, mentally stimulating. Uh, some were more interesting than others, but it's uh, uh, it's. It, uh, but I should I should also say that I don't think it's a good idea uh, to join a, a, a study with the idea that uh, this is this is what I'm going to do to get a cure. I mean, for me, because mm-hmm. if you if, if you have that attitude, you're bound to be just you're likely to be disappointed. The, yep. the chance of one person benefiting themselves is small. Um, but as the Alzheimer's, they have a great slogan that says that the first person who survives Alzheimer's will be in a study. And that's probably true. <laughs> so mm-hmm. some, somebody out there is, is going to you know, take that drug that works and, and, and be one of the first people to, to survive. Uh, I've already I've forgotten where we started on that. Uh, can you bring oh, me no. back on point? No, you did a great job. We were talking about, you know, just your oh, thoughts on, on getting tested. And, 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 you know, I do want to bring up, too, because uh, some people are – are not doing this under doctor's guidance and they're not getting kind of that genetic counseling uh, prior to doing that. You know, they're just doing these kind of things that are shipped out to us. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're thinking maybe they're looking for something else. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I've I've got, you know, this, this uh, gene. And, you know, that is not how you want to learn about this stuff. Um, No, no, not at all. And I and I think people you know run out and and take this stuff without really thinking of the the lifelong implications of now that I know that what does That's that right. mean and kind of like you know my philosophy is and I, I have not I'm I cho- I'm one of those that have chosen not to yeah. even though my mom has lived with it um, and my rationale is that I'm a I'm a firm believer that we probably all have the cancer gene in us or one type of cancer oh, gene yeah. in us. But that doesn't mean it's going to mutate. And yes. if I knew that, um, I think it's I think it's easy for people to go down the rabbit hole and believe if I have it, it's it's going to mutate. It's going to take over my life, and they start focusing on everything that they're going to lose when they haven't even mm-hmm. lost anything. And um, and again, when there's some easy lifestyle changes that people can take, because any any of those things that you mentioned before, the exercise, the diet staying socially mm-hmm. connected, um, staying active, watching our <clears throat> how much sleep we're getting, those those things are good for all of life, not just sending off dementia. Um, same Absolutely. with how we interact with people and how we treat people. You know, the lessons that are learned through through dementia are, are good worldwide on all levels, all generations, all cultures. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I've kind of twisted the disease myself to, um, to look at it that I really think dementia is here to teach us some really significant, important human lessons that mm. we, we have sidestepped um, mm-hmm. about what, what it means to be, you know, humane, um, what it means yeah. to be kind, um, what, it, what it means to even find joy. It doesn't have to be big and splashy and look good on Facebook to fill your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've gotten trapped in those things. And, and to me, you know, my mother's 30 years, 
was probably the biggest gift um, I'll ever receive. Though I will be the first mm-hmm. to admit it came in a very strange package and one yeah. that I never thought would deliver that to me. And um, yeah. But again, you're not going to find what you're not looking for. So if you feel hopeless and you feel disconnected, um, that's going to have a huge effect. And that's why it's so important for for people like you and others to step up and step out and say, this is what I'm dealing with. This is, you know, because we're not going to be able to find a cure, let alone find caring support that is needed if we don't have real conversations with real people. That's just the bottom line because we're not right. going to know what to deliver. We're not going to know what yeah. is needed. And so we really have to learn to take that that fear out. And I think your book does that in in such a nice way. It's it's optimistic. It's hopeful. Um, you, you really emphasize that the disease itself is not a hopeless situation. And, right. you know, people don't typically hear that. Um, you talk about advocating for the proactive steps that people can take to decrease their risk or to slow down the progress or um, you know, I would even add in your book um, the the ability to increase our our connections, you know, with our relationships, and really figure yep. out what's important. You know, yep. uh, it's it's kind of you know, anytime someone gets a chronic illness or you know, a, um, something that says their their life could be called shorter, you know, people create a bucket list, and a lot of times, again, that's big flashy stuff. I want to go on this trip, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's wrong, um, but look at your relationships. You know, what do you yeah. want out of those um, from from both sides? Because you know, dementia doesn't just impact the person who's diagnosed. It has a huge huge ripple effect to family and friends and coworkers and, and just people you bump into the, in, in, uh, into contact with in the community at the bank and the library, you know, at card club or wherever it might be at church. Um, you know, this is not something that, that only affects a select group of people and it, it knows no boundaries. And so it's important for us to take this seriously and to to step up and address what is what is real, um, and to, again to to um, like you say in your book, you know, give give hope, you know, let people know they yeah. they are still part, they are still part of this world, and they are still important. Um, you know, to me, that's just very very critical critical pieces. I wanted to ask for you, what was kind of the most difficult thing that you had to tackle uh, once you once you confirmed, yep, this is this is what I'm dealing with. Hmm. Um, well, I I I guess the the thing I was most ambivalent about was uh, how to talk to my children about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, I have three adult children, four grandchildren, and be, because I'm I have two copies of APOE4, that means they all have at least one copy of APOE4, mm-hmm. uh, and and I wanted them to be aware of that that they carry a risk uh, factor and and um, and what that means and I've I've I you know we've had to varying degrees I, we've had. Uh, conversations in depth about 
their potential risk and what they should do, when they should be tested, if if ever. And um, it, and I've tried to make them more enthusiastic, get some enthusiasm for eventually volunteering for studies because they're exactly the sort of person that the studies are looking for. Mm-hmm. Perhaps in another ten years or so, they're all in their, still in their thirties. Um, but uh, that was something I gave a lot of thought to, you know, how 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 to bring them into the the picture. Well, yeah, because that is a that's a scary a scary piece to discuss. You know that that yeah. can turn their world upside down too. In terms of what does this mean, you know, for us? And the sooner we can all honestly have these conversations and understand again you know this can happen to any of us um you know the better the better off that we'll be when it came to you know telling friends and things like that and and even your children did you do that right away a lot of people hold back and you yeah. know aren't comfortable with that no we we tended to do it and you know the kind of the 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 uh, most common reaction was, "No, you don't have Alzheimer's disease," because <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I, there was nothing outwardly apparent at least a, a year or two ago. Uh, I, I remember um, some very good friends of, of ours uh, that we uh, went to college with that we we see once or twice a year. Uh, they live in, in, in San Diego. We were down in San Diego, actually shortly after the the misadventure uh, with the drug trial, and I did have you know some 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 increased cognitive problems that have since improved. And we were in a restaurant, and uh, I I asked my wife uh, to figure the tip because I I just couldn't do it. And uh, and so I explained, you know, I have Alzheimer's disease, and they said what? Because <laughs> you know they they would have no idea. But you know now all those people, you know, all all our, our family friends, and right now they're you know pre-ordered the book and you're quite interested in the whole whole uh, whole journey, and and uh, it, it's been uh, it's been a lot of it's been interesting, yeah. Well, and I think you know, like you said, when one of the most common things is no, you don't, you can't. Um, and, yeah. and some of that is because they can't they can't see it. You know, um, a lot of mm-hmm. these things are, are hidden unless you're with somebody 24 um, seven and they don't realize that, like everyone, a person with dementia wants to fit in. So we work really hard, no matter what our deficits are, to fit yeah. in with the group. And so yeah. our social skills really take over. My mom was I mean, she was a genius at that for a long, long time. Yeah. And and yet, um, you know, it makes me laugh when people go, well, no, you can't. And it's like, do you think this was mm-hmm. easy for me to bring up? Um, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> it, it's not April Fool's Day. And yet that is such a common, common response, which just to me yeah. says how far we have to go in terms of educating people, um, you know, about this disease. Yeah, sometimes <clears throat> I feel like I ought to carry around the... A, a copy of my PET scan so I can show people, yes, I do. I do have it. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Trust me. Yeah. Um, but, I, again, this is the way, you know, we teach people. Um, I, you know, one thing I didn't um, mention when when you were talking, which, again, I think is really important, too, you, you talked about uh, some people have a difficult time with facial recognition. 
and uh, yes. you know the the facial blindness. And um, one gal, I don't know if you know her, but uh, Truthful Loving Kindness has been living with dementia for many years. And, you know, she mm. talks about not being able to recognize her husband by looking at him. Like if they go to a mm-hmm. restaurant and she goes to the bathroom and they can have a booth right outside the bathroom door and she'll look around and she does not have a clue. Who, yeah. who you know, what table do I go to until yeah. she hears his voice? Right. And and these are things that we have to talk about to make yeah. life more comfortable for everybody um, and less fearful, because how spooky could that be? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, some people, about 2% of the population is born with congenital face blindness. And I know uh, one of my uh, former colleagues, uh, that's a neurologist who can't recognize anybody until they speak. Uh, and, you know, she's in her 40s probably. Uh, and you you just adapt, but it, it's uh, when you lose it, like with Alzheimer's, it's very common in Alzheimer's. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it does add one more fraught thing when you can't tell who's who. Yeah, Gregor, exactly. uh, I, I don't know. If, have you, have you, do you know Greg O'Brien? Has he been on your show? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Years ago, before he was a, a big whoop-de-doo there, you know. <laughs> I mean, he, he always yeah. loses. And being a writer and stuff, but now he's he's really well-known as an advocate. Um, yeah. But he's written about his face blindness and, and just not being mm-hmm. able to recognize you know, close friends you know, when they come up to talk to him. But, yeah, yeah, and, and again, you know, good things for all of us to, to learn about and, and to know. Um, I do want to just mention to our audience that um, the book uh, you can pre-order at this point, and that is on your site, if I'm not mistaken, uh, tattoomybrain.com, or tattooonmybrain.com. And right. so, and people can go there and um, click on the, the contact button too if they would like to uh, talk with you further and um, you know I would encourage people you know to to get this book I think it really is a worthy read and you know for a lot of times uh, communities and conferences are are looking for a giveaway piece and a speaker I, I think you'd be excellent absolutely excellent you've got wonderful insights and and oh, um, really paint an, an, um, a truthful picture um, of, of what the disease uh, looks like, feels like, um, and what it can be um, to, to go through this process. So, again, thank you. Thank you so much. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Gibbs. And, um, again, his book is A Tattoo on My Brain, and you can uh, get that on his website, www.tattooonmybrain.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I wish you a wonderful Mother's Day for all those that are mothers or who mother. Um, Many people out there, uh, we wish you nothing but the best. And um, if you have any questions or would like to be our next guest, uh, reach out to me at radio at Alzheimer's. Speaks.com. And don't forget to visit our site. We have lots of resources there as well. Um, and, uh, and again, speaking of resources, check out DementiaMap.com. Thank you again, Dr. Gibbs. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank okay. You. Thank you. Bye now.
Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.